read Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. And let me, let me start with verse 11, since it all fits together. We've, I've preached verse 11. I'm going to preach verse 14 next time. Verses 12 and 13 are the meat of the exhortation. But we'll take those four verses together. Hear the word of God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the reading of your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us and guides us and the way that it, well, exhorts us and commands us and tells us not only who we are, but what we must be. And we ask you now that through the preaching, O God, that you would bring this word to bear upon our hearts in a more penetrating way, that it might know us and search us and transform us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I noted last time, the first word of exhortation or admonition in Romans is is verse 11, what we considered last time, that we are to reckon yourselves or ourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul had been telling us that truth, that we were dead to sin, we were alive to God, but now he commands us to reckon it, to realize it, to hold it before ourselves at all times, but having seen that, It's the first note of admonition we come to what he says in verses 12 and 13. Namely, that we are to use our bodies in a way that is glorifying to God. Not in in the service of sin, but in the service of God. It's interesting to note the difference between these two admonitions. They're both admonitions. One, reckon yourselves. The other, use your body. But they function very uh, very differently. Again, in one, he's telling us to reckon something. In other words, use your mind, exercise your faith, accept what is true, what God's word says is true about you, accept it. Stop pretending and living as though it weren't true. But here, in verses 12 and 13, having done that, and notice the order, reckon first, exercise your faith. Having done that, he tells us now to do something. He, he, he enters, as it were, the realm of actions, of practical holiness. In other words, once you've reckoned what is true about yourself uh, in your mind and in your heart, then this is what you ought to do. You must, again, you, in essence, summarizing these two verses, you must use your body in the service of God. You must live a life of practical holiness. That's what we just sung It says it's based on verse 19 of Romans chapter 6. I almost don't believe it. We were singing exactly what Paul is exhorting us to do. And I I hope to bring that that hymn back in at the end. But what I would notice is a first point 
about this second admonition is the word therefore. You see, verse 11 begins with the word likewise. Verse 12 begins with the word therefore. Is that not interesting to notice? Normally you can count in Paul on the therefore coming at the beginning of the admonition or the exhortation, but here it comes second. And we might ask the question, uh, as it's often been asked, what is the therefore therefore? Well, isn't it obvious? It is there to tell us what is the result of this reckoning. Verse 11. What happens to me, in other words, or at least what becomes possible in my own experience when I exercise my faith and when I reckon what is true not only of Christ, but what is true of me as well, because I am in Christ. When I reckon myself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What am I therefore enabled to do? What is the possibility that is then opened up to me? Well, I am able to do this, Paul says. I'm able To not allow or to stop sin from reigning in my body. I'm able to say no to the body. I'm able to use the body for good rather than for bad. Or look at it like this. When Paul comes to this word of exhortation, he's calling to mind all he's been saying. That's what the therefore is there for. He's presented the doctrine and it is on the basis of the doctrine that he makes his appeal. But do you see that you can never get this far so that you're able to stop sin from reigning in your mortal body? Unless you first start with the teaching, what is true of Christ, first of all, and therefore what is true of me if I am in Christ, verse three, verse five, verse eight. I've been reading them over and over and over. I hardly feel the need to do so anymore. But you've got to start there. You've got to see what is true of you if you are in Christ. You've got to believe that and accept it as true of yourself. And then, therefore, on that basis, you are to, you are to work out the doctrine and work out the teaching in your life. Do you see how he does it? Verse 13, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. You see, I recognize I'm alive from the dead, but now I'm ready to do something about it. I'm ready to present myself and my members to God as one who is alive and no longer dead. I've accepted the teaching. Now I'm acting. Now I'm in the realm of application. So that's what the therefore is there for. But the second thing I want to point out is this, and that is the distinction that Paul makes. It is a distinction which uh, has been underneath the surface and which I've alluded to several times, but which now comes out into a prominent place. It is a distinction which is crucial to the whole teaching of this chapter and of the next, and we could even say to the whole of Pauline theology. And I would be so bold as to say that you will never be able to live the Christian life effectively in your ongoing and constant battle with sin, with personal indwelling sin until... You can make sense of this. In other words, I think the better way to put it is you'll never be able to make sense of the Christian life until you can make sense of this. On the one hand, and I, and I am being fair to Paul here, I'm being fair to the teaching of, of the New Testament, and I'm prepared to back up this statement. On the one hand, the Christian is someone who does not sin. The new man, that is, in Christ. He does not sin. In fact, he cannot, for now he is a Christian. And yet, on the other hand... 
he goes on sinning every day. And Paul is not alone in making this observation. It isn't a contradiction. If you can appreciate the distinction, you'll see that. But you'll find, for instance, John, the apostle, in his first epistle saying in chapter 3, that the Christian is someone who does not sin, but is someone who practices righteousness. And uh, he puts it just as strongly as that, in that unqualified sense. That's what a Christian is. He doesn't live in sin. He doesn't abide in sin. His life isn't full of sin. His life is now full of God. It's unthinkable now that he would continue in the ways of sin. And yet, you remember what he says in chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar, and the truth is not, is not in us. And so we're confronted with both truths in Scripture. We're confronted with both realities in our own lives. On the, again, I would say, on the one hand, I'm a Christian, and that is what makes sinning so unthinkable. And yet, on the other hand, I find that I'm sinning every day. And if I were to deny that, I would be denying the truth of God. What you notice, I would not say is a contradiction, but this amazing contrast in the life of the believer. And how do we account for it? Well, we account for it by making this crucial distinction that Paul makes. I admit, John doesn't make it, but Paul makes it. And I think that helps us to understand what John is after. Here is the contrast. On the one hand, there is me as a person. You yourself, verse verse 11. Likewise, you Also reckon yourselves, you yourself. That is to say, the new man in Christ, in contrast to the old man in Adam, verse 6, knowing that our old man was crucified with him. The old man is gone. I'm not the man I once was. The old is past, the new has come. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You'll find uh, find the, the theology, the doctrine of the new man throughout Paul's letters. He's always stressing what we now are in Christ in contrast to what we were before we were in Christ. And and, and the central tenet of the new man, at least insofar as chapter 6 is concerned, the fundamental truth about the new man is that he's dead to sin. Every bit as much as Christ was dead to sin in his death and resurrection from the grave. I, as a person, as a man, have died along with Christ, and I have been raised up with him to newness of life. Verse 4. And so I'm not only dead to sin, but I'm now alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I can never go back. I've been taken entirely out of the ways and the realm of sin. I've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. That's where my feet are placed. That's where I'm now walking. And the life that I now live in that kingdom... I live to God completely, ever in his presence, ever finding his acceptance. And it is in that place, and in light of that teaching, that the thought of sin becomes so unthinkable. It is impossible, Paul is saying, that sin should ever again reign in me. That it should ever again exercise dominion as a Lord or as a master. That will come out in verses 15 and following when we get... To the second part of chapter chapter uh, 6. If I am to think of myself as a slave, I'm a slave not to sin, but to righteousness, to God. The great uh, dominating force in my life is not sin, but grace. I'm alive to God. I, as a person. But on the other hand, and note the distinction here, there is the body. 
Here Paul calls it the more, uh, a mortal body. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do you, do you notice the contrast? Reckon your, you yourselves to be dead to sin. As a result of that, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In verse 13, it is your members. That is, your hands, your eyes, your tongue, and so forth. And you notice even then, again, the contrast is present in verse 13. Do, do, um, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. There is I myself and then there is my body. In verse 6, he says, the old man was crucified with Christ. By implication, he doesn't say it, but he implies it. And the new man was raised with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. There's the distinction again. The old man, the body of sin. Which is dead? Well, the old man is dead. The body of sin, I'm sorry to tell you, is still alive and well. So the body of sin, the mortal body, this body of death, and so on. You can either consider the body as a whole... Or you can look at it in its individual parts, its members. But what I find, and I'm borrowing now from the teaching of chapter 7, what I find in my body is a different law than I find in myself. A different principle than I find in me. I find in my body, that is my flesh, the law of sin and death. Chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight... Uh, I I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, that is the new man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into, into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Again, you notice the contrast. What I find in myself is different than what I find in my body. Inwardly, I'm delighting in God's law. Outwardly, I find a different law. I find sin. I find, as Owen calls it, indwelling sin. And what I find in my body, now this is anticipating what he goes on to say in chapter 7, but what I find is that sin is always wreaking havoc in the body, in my flesh. It's always contradicting and opposing the work of the Spirit in the new life of the new new man. And even uh, what I find sometimes, and certainly uh, far too often, than I wish, is that sin is not only present, it is not only alive in my body, but that it is even reigning in my body. Reigning over my flesh, ruling, dominating it. Not over me as a person, again, keep the contrast in mind, but in my body it is not only alive, but at times it is reigning. To such an extent, in fact, that at times I begin to think about myself as a person that I have once again been enslaved to sin. I'm once again a slave to sin, taking Romans 6 and ripping it out of your Bibles and just just throwing it away. That's how we sometimes begin to think about sin. I'm a slave to it once more. Well, that isn't technically true, but it is technically true to say that at times your flesh is enslaved under the dominion of sin. And it is with that dichotomy in mind that Paul moves from verse 11 to verses 12 and 13. And it is because of this that I am not done with sin, even though I'm dead to it. The reason is because of the body, the body of sin. I cannot get rid of the body. 
Uh, sometimes you'll read uh, the old writers talking about, I can't get rid of the old man. Well, that's not true. I hate to be at, odd, uh, at odds with my heroes, but uh, I am <laughs> at odds with them here. What I can't get rid of, what I find I, I'm dragging about along with me on the road to heaven, and that is a constant nuisance to me and a constant burden is the body. I'm trying to live out this new life. I'm alive to God. I'm conscious of it. I'm delighting in God in the inner man. And yet there's the body always weighing me down. Always at war with the new life of the spirit. It's a constant nuisance to me. It is in that sense that Paul will conclude what he says in Romans chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the cry of the believer. Confronted as he ever is with this battle and this conflict and this contradiction in his own existence. I want and I long to be rid of the body. This body of sin. Not that the body is in itself evil. This is not Gnostic dualism. We aren't saying that true freedom is when you get rid, get rid of the body. It's the body of sin that we want to get rid of. I want to get rid of this mortal, dying, sinful flesh. And what I want more than anything is to put on the new flesh, the new body, which Paul says in Romans chapter 8 will happen too. The body will be redeemed at the end of the age. The redemption of our bodies is still yet to happen. But for now, I must labor and strive as a new man under the burdens of the flesh, under the burdens of indwelling sin. A body that is corrupted by sin. So much so that there is this constant irreconcilable war, as our confession describes it, quoting Galatians chapter 5 or 17. That uh, whatever the spirit wills in the inner man, the flesh opposes. And whatever the flesh wills, the spirit opposes. And there is this, uh, this constant struggle ever now in the Christian. But let me go on with the thought. Crucial to this distinction and even this contradiction in my own existence is that the body is never in control. I know that because Paul could never have said what he said here if that were true. The body is never controlled in an ultimate sense and certainly not for the Christian. It may be in a practical sense, but nothing more. I might give in to the body so that it seems to reign, but it never really does. It's always I myself who am in control. The body is always in service of the essential personality. What moves the body is the mind or, if you will, the will. That is fac uh, the faculties of the inner man. And that's why this distinction is so important. I am made new, but my body is not, not yet. I'm still awaiting the redemption of my body. But the question, therefore, becomes in the meantime, while I still have a mortal body of death and I'm waiting to be further clothed with the body of immortality after the likeness of Christ's resurrection body, in the meantime, the question becomes, it confronts me, it confronted Paul, it confronts you all this morning. What am I going to do with the body? Until it's redeemed. I am redeemed, but my body isn't. What am I going to do with it? Am I, am I going to use my body to serve God? Or am I going to let the body have the final say and obey its lusts, its corrupted, sinful desires that are ever uh, seeking to exercise dominion over me? The desire to sin. But the important point, I say again, is that the body is never in control. Never. I am as a person. It is my will and my mind that move the body. And, and this tells me that whenever 
I as a Christian sin with my body, it's because I've given into the body. It's because I've given the body and its desires too prominent a place and a say in my life. I've acted as though the body were in control when it isn't. Let me notice here as a third point. Do you see what a menace sin can be? What a menace sin still is for the believer, the new man in Christ? You see, it would be a mistake here to think, in light of the teaching of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, that sin cannot bother me now. I'm free from its influence and power entirely. Not so, says Paul. That is to misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. That is to take the idea of my death to sin too far. It's true of me as a person inwardly, as a personality, as a man. But once I begin to include my body, I realize that the statement is not true comprehensively, not yet. If you are a Christian, you still have to deal with sin in your body. And there, it can be quite a menace. It can become, and often is, a destructive force in your life. How so? Well, it is a menace in this sense. Sin, and we might note uh, here how Paul, and he's been doing this since chapter 5, is in essence personifying sin. It's like this enemy with whom we're contending. It's a menace in the sense that it's always asserting itself and it's always trying to reign. It's seeking dominion. It's seeking control. It seeks obedience. Paul speaks of, in our bodies, obeying the lusts. Sin seeks obedience. And if you allow sin to dominate, it will. Even as a Christian. In fact, I would go so far as to say it will wreck and it will ruin your life. Don't think for a moment that it won't. Even the new man in Christ can have his whole life ruined and destroyed by sin. Have you not already learned this? Uh, I hope in a minor way by painful experience. How destructive a force sin can be in your life. And have you not read of countless examples in scripture? How full of this sad testimony scripture is. How destructive sin can be in a man's life, even he who is redeemed. How are we to deal with this? Well, in light of the very teaching we've been considering, we have to realize our true position. I myself as an individual, as a man, as a personality, am made new. I am not a slave to sin. Sin can never again enslave me. It can never dominate me. It can never compel or constrain obedience. I am set free. But my body is not. Going again to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Though I delight in the law of God and the inner man, there is another law at work in my members. And that is the law of sin, indwelling sin. It is there in my body that I find that sin is alive. And it is a potent force. There in my flesh it is always troubling me. It's always seeking to trip me up and ensnare me. And at times I find even that it's succeeding in doing so. And that is the position we're in. Inwardly made new. Outwardly sin is still alive and at times it is raining. But it is just here that the exhortation comes in and becomes relevant. Having grasped the true position of the Christian. 
And it is a twofold exhortation. You will notice the first stated negatively, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That is the negative side. Don't obey its lusts. The body, you realize, has certain appetites, not sinful in themselves, but now corrupted by sin. That's what sin is. Sin is taking something that is good in itself and corrupting it, distorting it, exaggerating it. The Puritans would speak of inordinate desires. You might want something that's, that's right and wholesome. Maybe it's food, maybe, maybe it's something else. But there, there is an exaggerated form of desire that you must shun. Sin, as it lives in the body, is always making its claim on your life and your actions. And what Paul says is as simple as this. Don't listen. Don't obey. Realize what is true of you in Christ as a person and simply put the body in its place. Stop giving the body a place it was never meant to have, especially now that it has been corrupted by sin. Keep it under you. Recognize that you are in control always, not the body. Stop letting the body have the final say. Practice self-control, self-denial. These are the fruits of a true conversion. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14? But I put on, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I recognize the difficulty Paul is saying, and I would have you to recognize it too. I see what a potent force sin is in my body and how easily it could trip me up. How easily it could not only distort, but ruin the whole testimony of my ministry. I keep my body under subjection. But positively, he says, to use your body for good in verse 13. Not only don't let it reign in your body. But do not uh, present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Do you notice that Paul never stops at the negative? He always starts with the negative, but he never stops there. He blends the negative with the positive. What is our attitude of the body to be? Well, far too often, and this is the Gnostic dualism that is not true at all. They would say, just ignore the body, get away from it. Long for its removal. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, don't just ignore it. Do something with it. Realize that the body is in the service of your person, uh, of our wills in particular. So don't just ignore the body and try to endure it until you're set free. No, he says, now that God has redeemed you and will soon redeem your mortal bodies also in the resurrection. In the meantime... You ought to use your bodies in his service. Everything that you have, all that you are, bring it into the service of God. That's how he puts it in verse 13. Not only the negative, but the positive also. You see, it's still possible, and we have to realize this, that we would present and we would use our members in the service of sin. In fact, that's what happens every time we sin, that we as new people are using our bodies in the service of sin. We're yielding. We're obeying. We are acting as though we were powerless against the lusts of the flesh. 
as though the body, say, was greater than the mind, say, as though the flesh were greater than the spirit. But Paul says, not only should you never do that, but positively your life should look like this as one who is alive to God in Christ. Present yourself. That is your person, your body, the whole of yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, not just in principle, but in practice. And that is what it means in a practical sense to be alive to God. Yes, it is a wonderful realization. It is a wonderful experience inwardly. To be able to reckon and to realize and to understand I am dead to sin, I'm alive to God. What has happened to Christ has happened to me. I am aware of this. I am rejoicing in it. I am standing in this grace. That's all very wonderful. But I would say with Paul, don't just tell me about it. Don't just tell me how wonderful your experience and your realization is. But show me. Show me with your life. Let me see the reality of what you feel and you know and you realize. Show me what a life lived unto God really looks like. You see, and we come back here to the original point. Paul is saying that the man who's really alive to God and dead to sin will stop sinning. He will stop using his body in the service of sin. And not only that, but he will yield the whole of his person and the whole of his life, which includes his body, unto God. And if he doesn't do both, if he doesn't stop sinning with the body and if he doesn't start living unto God, Is he really alive to God? Is there any reality in what he claims? And so Paul says it's a matter of our bodies. It's a matter of our actions. Not only of what we don't do, but of what we do. The way we use our bodies. That's the stuff of the Christian life. It's true, let me say again. And let us have our categories clear. The body is not alive to God. That is not the teaching. But I am. I am alive to God. And therefore, I am able to present my body in his service always. I am able always to live a life in his service. And that is what I must realize. And I must act upon that realization always. I am alive from the dead. And therefore, I am able to present my body and its members as instruments of righteousness. To do what is right. That is the teaching. And that is the exhortation. How do I do so? Well, did we not just sing it? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. You see, that's a description of what Paul is saying here. Don't just mortify the deeds of the flesh. I want you to do that. I want you to recognize that sin is at work in your members. You have to oppose it constantly. You have to put it to death. Romans chapter 8 verse 13. We'll get there. But beyond that, recognize what a wonderful resource your body is. And how in your bodies you are meant to glorify God. With your mouth speaking of him. Stop lying, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4. Start speaking words of life. As God has redeemed you, words uh, seasoned with salt, words of grace. Stop listening to what the world says and start listening to what God says. Your feet, your hands, your mind, your eyes. You think of what Jesus says there. 
Use it all in the service of God, not in the service of sin. Or you think of Paul's central admonition as he really comes to the point of admonition in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. What's the first thing he says? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present what? Your bodies. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Uh, I've been reading uh, a biography of Jonathan Edwards, not the Ian Murray, but the, the George Marsden one. And he has a wonderful portrait of Sarah Edwards. Uh, something he said about Sarah Edwards struck me uh, in the preparation of this sermon. Uh, she was one like her husband who is interested in a life that is full of God. And at one of the mountaintop experiences that she had in uh, the second awakening, uh, under the first great awakening in the in 1740s, was the realization that what Paul was saying here was true of herself. That she was to yield herself and her body unto God. My body is given in his service. Is that not the testimony of the martyrs? Yielding their bodies in his service, even to the end. Sarah Edwards uh, said something which is enormously striking and almost terrifying. She said, I would spend a thousand years in hell if it would serve his glory. I would yield my body unto him, even to that extent. I am his. That's what Paul is saying here. Let me offer, as a second illustration, something that Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his Romans chapter 6 uh, book of sermons. And uh, if you were to get any one of those books, I would recommend the volume where he covers chapter 6. One of the best treatments on this chapter you will find. And he famously said this, speaking of the Christian man, here I am, the struggling and striving, defeated and unhappy. Suddenly I look at an advertisement which says, come to the clinic. I'm quoting actual words that are used, come to the clinic. What you need, we are told, is to come to the clinic, to the spiritual hospital, and here your sickness and your illness can be dealt with. But as I read the verses that we are studying, I see no suggestion whatsoever of a clinic. Rather, I find a barracks, not a hospital, but a military center. What do I need? What do I find? I do not find a doctor here. We all, uh, what we all need is not a doctor, but a sergeant major. Here we are, as it were, slouching about the parade ground, feeling our own pulses, feeling miserable, talking about our weakness. So we say, I need a doctor. I need to go to the clinic. I need to see the medical officer. But that is not right. What you need is to listen to the voice of the sergeant major who is there shouting out the commands of God to you. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Yield not your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Yield yourselves unto God. You have no business to be slouching about like that. Stand on your feet. Realize who and what you are. Enlisted in the armies, in the army of God. Present yourself. This is not a clinic. It is in line with that. Uh, that one of the methods of biblical counseling uh, that I believe in is somewhat controversial. But I believe it is true. It is in line with what Martin Lloyd-Jones just said. I am of the mind that simply telling people, and that is Christian people, to stop it when they are sinning is the thing to do. You know, we were told in the counseling class, don't do that. Well, I rejected that. What you tell a man to do who claims he's a Christian and he's sinning, said he has to stop it. He ought to stop it. Oh, but you don't understand my struggle. Struggle. If you did, you wouldn't be so harsh and unloving, they say. 
But is that what the apostle does? Oh, I understand your struggle. Does he make allowances for sin? No, he looks upon the Christian and he simply says, stop doing this. Stop allowing sin to reign. Stop it. And start doing what is right in light of who you are as a Christian man. And so it all comes to this. And I close with this thought. Have you understood the teaching? Do you know what it means to be a Christian? One who is under grace in Christ. As we'll see in verse 14. The Christian is one who is under grace. Well, here is the test. Do you allow sin to reign in your mortal body? Or do you present yourself and even your body in the service of God? In other words, how do you live? That is the test. And there is no surer test than this as to who is truly the Christian. Nor is there any greater help at arriving at a true assurance as to ourselves whether we are truly Christians. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. What he is calling the Christian to do. Actions. Start living the Christian life. It's not a matter of feelings, he says. It's a matter of what we believe first and foremost. And then on that basis, how we live. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness as sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Amen. And let us come now to the table. I'll read the words of institution as they come to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same manner. He also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Well, that is the promise and that is the position of the Christian. The Christian is one who is not only remembering uh, Christ's crucifixion, but he is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And again, we are left with the question, what are we to do in the meantime? Well, we are to be found worshiping God, attending his ordinances, very much like the priests of the old covenant. Uh, When God visits his house, you think of Malachi, what does he wish to see? The priest attending his ordinances. What are the ordinances of the new covenant? Well, they are the preaching. They are the sacraments. They are the singing and praying. Just as simple as that. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And that is the stuff of Christian worship. You notice the sacraments have a place. They belong in Christian worship. And our interest is simply until Jesus Christ comes to be busy doing his work. And to recognize at the same time as Paul will go on to say that we are to discern his body in uh, in the sacrament. In other words, we are to exercise our faith when Christ says, this is my body and this cup is my blood in the new covenant. He's saying, exercise your faith in me at the table. Thus, it is an invitation for all true believers to come. Uh, But at the same time, it is 
Uh, it is, uh, and, and you notice, in the same night in which he was betrayed, there seems to always be that solemn reminder that it is, capable, uh, that it is possible and, and seemingly even likely that, uh, that imposters might come. And so we're called upon to examine ourselves before we take and eat. But if we should find true faith in our hearts, then we are instructed to come and to receive from Christ. Uh, And with those words of institution and uh, and uh, and invitation, let us now pray. Our father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. We view it as as uh, as it has always been viewed, and that is as a means of grace that by which the believer is strengthened in all graces, but especially the grace of believing, even as you call us to believe and to exercise faith in Christ and to discern his body and the true meaning of his words. So you also strengthen our faith. And it seems it's always like that, Lord, just as soon as we exercise our faith, we're conscious of its weakness. But you promise through these things to strengthen our faith. God, in the case of some, may this ordinance, just just the words of institution, may it become the means by which they come to faith. But those who have faith, oh God, we pray it might be strengthened. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.